Um, my name is Kate Galbraith. I'm an energy reporter at the Texas Tribune, and uh, welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival. This uh, great panel is going to be on the uh, future of electricity in Texas, a really important topic. And uh, so, so just to introduce the panelists here, on my left is uh, uh, Donna Nelson. She's um, the chairman of the Public Utility Commission, and she's been chairman since uh, uh, July of last year and uh, was appointed to the commission by uh, the governor in 2008. And prior to that, she did advisory work for uh, uh, the government on um, uh, energy, telecom, and cable issues and, and uh, budget and policy issues and uh, she's what I find sort of fun is she's a native of South Dakota um, and uh, uh, got interested in uh, legal and regulatory issues um, early after after working in Washington for one of her home state senators and uh, she somehow found her way to Texas and uh, it's great to have her here on the panel I, I talked to her a lot um, um, on electricity issues. And uh, next to her is David Campbell. He is the chief executive of uh, Luminate, major power generation uh, company, subsidiary of Energy Future Holdings. Uh, he's been head of Luminate for uh, more than four years, and before that he worked for the um, company as, as uh, chief financial officer for another six years, and has also worked at McKinsey, the consulting firm. And uh, I should mention that Luminant um, is my by my very rough uh, calculations, accounts for about a fifth of the capacity of the entire uh, Texas grid. So uh, uh, that's, that's very impressive. Um, and next to him is Michael Weber, who is the Associate Director of the Center for uh, International Energy and Environmental Policy at uh, UT Austin. He also uh, co-directs the Clean Energy Incubator, um, at, which is part of the Austin Technology Incubator. Um, an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at UT Austin, and uh, uh, he's, he's been one of the kind of uh, ideas people behind the Pecan Street project, which is our local smart grid project. He's very valued among journalists for being um, clear spoken and uh, knowledgeable about a vast range of energy issues. Uh, so I've always enjoyed talking to him. And then on the end is uh, uh, Pat Wood. He works for he works on uh, energy and infrastructure uh, issues out of uh, Houston for a variety of, of companies, sort of natural gas, private equity, uh, on the board of solar, battery, you name it, Pat's, Pat's there. And uh, uh, he has a very um, impressive history. He, he became chairman of the Texas Public Utility Commission in uh, 1995 under Governor Bush, then went on to become the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory uh, uh, Commission uh, when uh, uh, the uh, governor went to Washington. And what I've enjoyed learning about Pat is that he grew up in uh, Port Arthur, where his grandfather had managed a Gulf oil refinery, and some of his great uncles had piloted uh, tanker ships. And uh, so that got him interested in energy. So welcome, uh, welcome to our panelists. And uh, the first question I, I wanted to ask, and maybe uh, we could start with you, um, um, Chairman Nelson, is just to get a, a brief picture of, of what our grid uh, situation is, you know, we kind of hear a lot about the strains on the grid and, you know, do we have enough uh, power going forward and, but there have been some positive announcements recently, some new um, uh, natural gas plants um, and perhaps some new numbers out of ERCOT, uh, the grid operator. So I was just wondering if maybe the panelists could kind of describe uh, uh, the situation and sort of how 
how problematic it is. And by the way, I've warned the panelists that uh, uh, I'm going to be jargon police here. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll try to try to do our best to, to talk in good English. So well, maybe. first of all, I would say that's a hard job to be jargon police <laughs> in this industry. Um, I guess if you look back about a year and a half, we um, ERCOT sets the reserve margin in Texas. And of course, the ERCOT area of Texas, which is 85% of the load in Texas, is its own ISO. So unlike all the other areas of the United States, the continental United States, Texas is its own market. And, and that comes, and I, I think that's, that was a good decision. You know, it shows the independent streak that Texas has always had. Um, but, and, and it provides a lot of opportunities, but it can also provide challenges. So in, under the leadership of Pat Wood and the legislature in 1999, they restructured the industry. And um, we have fully competitive wholesale and retail markets. Um, and we have had since 2002. And it's resulted in very vibrant competition in both industries. But about a year, year and a half ago, when we look at the reserve margin that ERCOT predicts in the coming years, um, it was showing that in the years like 2014, 2015 and out, we are not gonna meet the reserve margin, the target that ERCOT sets. Right now, I think the numbers are about 11% um, for 2014. and nine something for 2015. So we put our hats on, you know, the, the market has gone through iterations as it's, um, as it's matured and we've had to do some tuning and this I guess would say is another step in that process. It's not an indication that the market's failed, but um, we've taken a number of actions, most of which have been to offset the ad administrative intervention that's necessary to keep the lights on. So, um, and with that, I'm gonna just stop and let the other panelists talk, because I could talk for the whole hour. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Michael, why don't you go Okay, next? so I always have something to say. So it seems like the grid this year is showing record demand. There's a lot of power that's being demanded, and the generators are meeting the needs, which is great news. But it also seems like this year, and David, correct me if I'm wrong, that no one's making any money. So unlike most years where the demand's very high, usually the prices go high with it, so you make more profit, which sends a sign to build more stuff. But this year's a little different, that the demand is high, but prices are still low. So we, the consumers, benefit, but the generators get in a pinch. And so it's harder for you to get the market signals you need to build things. Is that, is that correct sort of monitor? It seems like prices are lower this year than last year, for example. I think that's right. The, um, so in uh, jargon-free world, is tough for me. But the, in the Texas market, we're highly correlated with natural gas prices, electric prices are. So in 2007, 2008, wholesale prices, electric prices, were about double what they are now, a little more than double. Um, last year, it was such a hot summer, you did see prices rise in the summer because it was, it was just so tight, we almost ran out of electricity. This year, the, uh, we have had high demand overall, but we haven't seen the scarcity, and with low natural gas prices, prices have been quite low. So it has helped consumers, uh, but it has definitely created an environment where the economics of building a new plant are very challenged. But we are having some new plants built. I mean, uh, there have been a couple of Panda Power announcements about new natural gas facilities recently. So does that portend a, you know, sort of that, that it's not as much of a, a problem as everybody says? Well, I think that it's uh, in the numbers that Chairman Nelson went through, the reserve margin, so how tight the market's going to be in future years. The Panda plants were expected by ERCOT, so they've been included in their forward estimates. Okay in where capacity is going to be. So where, where, where it shows we're getting tight in the next couple of years, they already expected those plants to come online. 
I think it is a good sign that they were able to close financing. It was very tight. If you analyze the terms the, of the debt, it is public. It's, you know, it's pretty hard to get any kind of interest rate, but the interest rate that the lenders will get for Panda will be between 9 and 11%, and it's only 50% debt. So it's, it is a very tight market. I think it those show that it's possible, but at the same time, those were expected. And I, help, I think it helps to reinforce just how tight it is, given where prices are. Mm -hmm. Pat, I'd welcome your historical um, perspective on this. I mean, how did we how do we get in this situation? Pat, by the way, was was um, among those who helped uh, uh, sort of craft the deregulation uh, strategy back in in uh, the late '90s when he was at the the PUC. How do you how do you see this? The, the overarching goal of move to competition here and across the country has been a, a recognition, Kate, that generation, building a power plant, while it's a very important skill set, is not one that's inherently a monopoly. And so in really 92 federal level and really 95, 6 here, we started that process of separating out generation from the regulated entity. And so take a company like Energy Futures Holding, the old TXU, it has a wires company, Encore, but it also has Luminant that David's head of, which is the generation company. It's not regulated. In the old days, all that power plant from TXU was put in consumer customer rates, and those rates were basically a promise that the government made through the PUC and others that you will have, you utility, will have the right over the next 40 years to recover the cost of that plant. And so that was kind of an interesting way, but we also kind of, at that point, regulators and the industry informally kind of said, we're going to build about 15% more than we need on the hot day. So the hot day this year would be, what, 65 gigawatts of power for Texas. So we're going to kind of carry, as Donna was saying, the reserve margin an extra 15%. That was included in rates, and everybody basically paid that. It was a required subsidy. It's the, you know, Obamacare's mandate, everybody must have the insurance. Everybody had to cover, everybody had that. And so um, in the early days of competition, when we opened up the market, kind of broke that, broke that promise, made the utilities relatively whole through this uh, process called stranded costs, we kind of moved forward in an environment where we didn't really think about I mean, it was out there. But at the time, Calpine and others had built 20,000 new megawatts of efficient new natural gas. This was kind of through the mid-'90s. Once the world got the message that Texas was getting ready to open and open big, not just at wholesale but at retail, and they came. This was one of the easiest environments in the world to site generation. You, go, you didn't need a regulatory approval. Uh, you just needed the approval from the, from the TNRCC, which is now called TCEQ, I believe, to, for air permission and, if needed, for water. So there were pretty minimal, but you know, appropriate, minimal um, regulatory uh, hurdles that you had to go over to build a new, particularly gas plant. Coal's a little trickier, but um, Texas was able to do that as well in the recent years. So it's a nice environment to build a new plant. And they came, and they came. And so we had so much extra capacity through the whole decade mm -hmm. after we opened the market. It was very different than what California had, where they were kind of coming close to the edge and, and had problems in 2000. But that's the, that's the market in which we opened. And so that new plant kind of closed down a lot of old plant. The old plant was really inefficient. There were old gas plants that were run maybe 10 or 15 percent of the hours of the year, period. And so those plants, inefficient as they are, were the ones that set that nice clearing price. So if you were multiplying an inefficient plant times a $5 price for natural gas or 4 or 10 or whatever it was, that set the, the clearing
Here, well, every plant kind of more efficient than that one setting the price made a nice profit. And so whether that was a coal plant, a newer gas plant, a nuclear plant, all those got, so now that gas is down, I think David was referring to this, now that gas has come down to $2 and you're multiplying $2, not times the old heat rate of 14, but a, a new heat rate of seven, well, that clearing price is way down here, which is great for customers, but it's tough for the producers to get a signal that, hey, place rack, place rack, so I can you know, make a nice return on my investment. So that's kind of macroeconomics going on. Those first 10 years of competitive markets, and I'm, I'm kind of taking competition from when we opened the wholesale market largely in 97 timeframe. Those, those 10 years were ones where this issue that Donna and, and the team across, well, the PUC, but really across the industry are grappling with today, that was kind of masked because we had all this exuberant new build, all these old inefficient plants were still around, they were slowly being closed down by market forces. And so that kind of is, that's the, the background for what we have today. And, and then you have the additional factor of the fact that we have 13%, I think, of our install capacity right now is wind. And um, wind also gets a federal tax credit, and so they often bid in um, below zero. So that also has an effect on the wholesale prices, on the average wholesale prices. So there have been a number of factors that have contributed to it, to, to where we are today. But yeah. I think it's good to look forward and say, okay, this is where we are, but let's see what we need to do to, to get investment in Texas. Texas has always been a very business-friendly state, and we want to make sure that continues. And over the time that um, Pat was talking about, you've also seen an increase in the average consumer's expectation with respect to electricity. You know, we are, we are connected all the time, and people have, you know, I remember 15 years ago, if, if our lights went out, we'd just get our flashlights out and we would um, get candles, but now it is people are very intolerant of outages and so you know my job is to balance and I'm sure Pat would agree with this our job is to hit that sweet spot where you have reliability but you keep prices um, low enough that uh, people can afford to turn their air conditioners on and their lights on and and that's what we're really struggling with and trying to attain. Yeah, I, I don't own a candle, um, I have to say, but uh, <laughs> your, your, yeah. I, your iPhone has a candle app. You can yeah. just there you <laughs> find it around. Yeah. But you'll have to plug it in to recharge yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's good I don't for have about 24. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, what is the trade-off here between, um, uh, you know, the pricing for consumers and uh, the ability to attain reliability? I mean, Michael, I'm, I'm curious to your thoughts on that because, you know, from a consumer perspective, cheap power is, uh, is great. You know, what's, what's the yeah. problem and can't we keep it that way and have everything? I mean, cheap power is good for our manufacturers. Cheap power is good for the consumers in the residential commercial sector, so we like that. It's good for our pocketbook. Cheap power, if it's too cheap, will invite reliability problems because you can't get the money to the generators they need or to the wires guys to build the system they need to keep it reliable. And if it's too cheap, it's bad for the environment. And if it's too cheap, it's bad for certain behaviors where we overconsume because it's not priced the right way. So it needs to be cheap enough that we can be sort of economically efficient and prosperous. And then as we start to make additional demands on the system, we want it to be more resilient. Three nines isn't good enough. We want four nines resilience or five. We'll have to pay more probably unless technology comes along. Or if we want it to be cleaner, we might pay more. So this is often the struggle. Well, we need to be cheap enough so we can really function well. And we, want, we like cheap power as consumers. But uh, if it's too cheap, it comes along with other problems that end up being much more expensive. And that's the, the balancing act that all these guys around me have to deal with. And I think um, 
And so I think that's the constant struggle, especially as we raise our expectations for cleanliness and resiliency or operation stability of the grid. I mean, I think this example of the candle is correct. Like we used to own hurricane lamps and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And people just don't have to think about it because the power, if it does go out, will come back on in an hour or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we do have a good grid and we have higher standards here in Texas than most of the world. In a lot of the world, 90% reliability is actually good enough. Hmm. In a lot of the world, 40% reliability is all they get. And so we're kind of spoiled and we're used to it. We've had 100 years of this. So it's hard to let go of it once you've had it. And so that's, uh, that's the challenge for the generators in the industry is that we're constantly pushing up our expectations, but we're also saying we want to pay less for it as it gets better. And that's actually kind of worked because the real cost of electricity has dropped for a long time, over 100 years, and the reliability has gone up. So in a way, we're not being completely unreasonable because technology or better practices come along. But it is, uh, it is kind of a conundrum and it puts everyone else in a pickle. We finicky consumers, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be curious about uh, is the panel's thoughts on on the uh, future uh, uh, sort of fuel type of the grid. I mean, it's it's been very interesting to see it evolve from you know sort of your your time, Pat, when it was what uh, uh, sort of more 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 gas was it? Um, well, you had you had ninety plus percent when I was a kid, and then when right. when the, the fuel use act came in, and, and the federal government and then the railroad commission both said, wait, no more gas for electric power generation. Then we went to a big, as Texas was growing, that happened to come at the exact worst time for us. We built the big two nuclear complexes in the state and then a bunch of coal plants. Mm -hmm. um, and David's got a lot of those now today. So I mean, that really was the switch. And then really 90s kind of switched back to gas, but we've come nowhere near where we were. I mean, we might get there if we're on mm -hmm. the same trajectory. Mm -hmm. Then as Donna pointed out, a huge amount of wind has come in since mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the, the uh, 99 act. Um, we don't have much hydro. Solar, as the price comes down, that I expect you'll see more of that through the grid, particularly the state of the state, state and westward, mm -hmm. where the sun resource is really attractive. Um, you know, gas. It's hard. To, it's hard to imagine the future without it being gas dominant. I mean, gas is just. It's here. It's going to be here. Um, that I think was our past and will be our future. It'll just have a lot of other families sitting around the table with it. David, I'd be curious to your thoughts on, on coal, you know, having, having recently announced that you'll be um, sort of idling one of uh, uh, your big uh, uh, coal plants next, next winter, this yes. winter. So Lumina, we operate uh, coal, natural gas, and nuclear plants. We own all those types, and we're a, one of the biggest buyers of wind in the country. So we, we try to have a diverse perspective across the fleet. Uh, we have a pending application for a, new, a license to expand our, expand our nuclear plant. Uh, we filed that initially when natural gas prices were much higher, power prices were much higher. We're still pursuing the license, so it's not an economic environment where you'd, you'd launch building a nuclear plant, but the odd thing of, if, if we started building a nuclear plant today, it'll take a few more years even to get a license. It wouldn't come online, say, 10 years from now. Uh, so it'll operate between 2022 and 2082. <laughs> so we're in a business where you make very, very long-term infrastructure decisions but you're influenced by very near-term price dynamics. And you have to strike the right balance. That's the nature of the business we're in. So we know we don't want to overreact to the price environment. I hope the country doesn't abandon nuclear, because I think it's we're really benefit from the nuclear fleet we have in the US today. Um, but it's hard to make these decisions on something that's going to, what's the average price going to be in 2052? Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to determine the economics of a nuclear unit, not the economics of a price today in 2012. I, I do think that with the natural gas Price environment we're in. In the spring and fall, uh, coal plants are 
Uh, it used to be when natural gas prices were higher, you'd operate your coal plant 100% of the time. As, as long as it was available, it would run because it was cheaper than natural gas. Now in the spring and fall when demand is lower, uh, when wind tends to blow more, when wind is uh, online and uh, natural gas prices are, are cheap, coal is often not needed. So you don't run them as much in the spring and the fall. That's why we're only going to run a couple of our higher cost units in the summer next year. I do think natural gas is favored in, given the current pricing environment for new generation. But I think from a long-term perspective, uh, you'll see a balance across fuel sources because that's usually what benefits the grid most is if you have diversity because you can get a lot of volatility in input prices across different fuel types. If you only rely on one type of generation, then you might get stuck if prices for that one fuel source get high. I think there's like four parameters I think of. One is the demand for power is growing in Texas, which is something you cannot say in the rest of the nation necessarily. So we're a unique market that we have more people, more economic growth, more appliances, so we, we have to build something. And there are a lot of places in America where that's not true. They, if they need something new, they'll have to shut something else down. So we're in a position where we're adding um, generation. Then the second sort of looming question is what are the environmental regulations going to be? Because those will drive a lot of decisions. And either water or air or land or whatever, and who knows what they are, and they're a shifting target, and they're very political and highly politicized, and they'll be, the rules will be issued, and then they'll be battled in the court, and then they'll be reissued, and so these take many years to come out. And that creates uncertainty about which choices will comply with the environmental regulations. So that's a piece of it. Um, the uh, third piece is what are the prices going to do? And you mentioned like having a 70-year allocate price is tough, and natural gas is very low right now, but a lot of people can remember what the prices were in 2008. And coal's been on a 13-year upswing. And the question is, is that 13-year steady increase in coal going to continue? A lot of that's actually from China creating a world market for coal, driving those prices up. So all of a sudden, coal's got a world price, which we've never had before. Like oil. <laughs> yeah, and natural gas has a domestic price. So we, so we have these weird decoupling of markets going on that will affect this. And then I think another big question is what the capital markets will do. We, we have a very competitive wholesale generation market in Texas, but the capital markets feel a little broken still. And they're afraid to give big loans, it seems, or they can't give the right interest rate. If they give a big loan, it'll be a 13% or something. So if you want to build a really large plant for coal or nuclear, they, it just becomes more expensive to finance. And so it seems like the capital markets aren't necessarily preferring cleaner or domestic, but they're preferring smaller, more modular, which is solar or wind or natural gas or other things. So the capital market's a big player in this, and they seem like they don't want to give a $12 billion loan these days. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that will affect the decisions even more than the environmental regulations, at least in the near term. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how uh, far you all think we can go with uh, solar. You know, the solar folks seem to be, you know, really pushing the idea that solar is a, a way to meet uh, peak demand, which is, of course, a real, real need in this, in this state. And so in that sense, it's different from the, the West Texas uh, wind and you know Pat you've um, um, been working on on some solar we've we've talked about that and where, where do you see this uh, uh, going one of the nice things about solar and, and it's not totally direct I've got solar in my house now and combined with my smart meter thank you Donna for giving us smart meters and the PUC pushing that a little about 10 years faster than it would have gotten here um, I'm glad you like it. A lot of people have problems with it. <laughs> well, I don't think it'll radiate my children or create okay. uh, odd, odd pets on the side of my house with the, the and I don't mind. Uh, you can learn a lot by putting something in front of an existing house without a smart meter to, if you want to invade somebody's privacy anyway. So if, if, my, if my use of electricity is of interest to somebody, have at it. You can have my, <laughs> my, 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 my. but I did notice 
um, that my, my, my house peaks, and this is a residential, so in the aggregate we really do peak, and you get, uh, there's a nice app for the iPhone that ERCOT puts out that I would recommend everybody to get because it's A free, and be a nice little nudge when you, they want you to conserve that really helps make Donna's job a lot easier. So, um, but it shows you where the, where the kind of bid curve is from the day before prognostication of, of load, and then it shows you where the load is. And we do peak around four or five o'clock throughout the year, some months more than others, but generally in, in North Texas, probably a, a little earlier than South Texas. But um, the solar resource kind of really mores around in my, on my house. I get a little app for that too from SunPower, but probably really more in the midday. So you, you've got a little bit of a time dis, dislocation. Not a bad one. It's, a, it's better than the wind resource. Not as good, of course, as coal, nuclear, or gas, which are controllable by a man but, or woman, but the solar thing in the afternoon, it, it starts to look, the economics start to look better. And the solar companies are seeing this in California and Arizona where you've got a really good, cal, a really good solar resource, similar to what we have in West Texas, where you would have some, some symmetry between when the prices go up, which is afternoon pricing. You know, you get, if you get over 100 bucks a megawatt hour, i.e. 10 cents a kilowatt hour, you're starting to get into the price where solar starts to make sense. Now solar gets a nice 30% subsidy from the feds that's going to last till mid-decade and then it'll go away, but I think with com competition in the world market for solar, you're going to really get to grid parity at that price. Now customers, generally, even in the fully open market we have here, you still get that annual price. So you get the eight cent rate or nine cent rate that's kind of prevailing out there. That doesn't send a great signal to the customer that hey, the midday is when it's really costing the system, costing you a lot. And so until we get real-time pricing, and the big customers have that and have had that for a long time, but until the, the mass market gets real-time pricing as a routine part of doing business, which may never happen because it might be too complicating for the typical customer who doesn't want to worry about it once a year, once a year, a year to get. But real-time pricing would really probably help solar the best. Barring that, I think it's going to be um, bigger projects that munis and people that are buying under contract. PPAs, Austin, San Antonio did probably the biggest deal in the country with a solar company um, recently to go add 400 megawatts. So it'll, it'll come, I think it'll come slower than the wind uh, influx came. The economics are not quite there yet, but you know, I think they'll be there by the end of this decade for sure. But I don't, I don't, I think, I don't know if your question means near term, Kate, or if it means you know, by the time my kids graduate from high school, well, yeah, by then I think you'll see a lot more solar probably in the world. But, you know, it, it, to build a solar plant, you know, David wants to put up a new gas plant, gas typically about 800 megawatts or so, kind of for your kind of basic unit, 200's bad up to four. That's a lot. If you're doing that much solar, that would be a tremendously large project solar-wise. So um, it'll come in, but in much smaller little bits. I like well, what Michael said. I think those smaller little bits are pretty easy, much more attractive to financiers uh, to put on. But it, it's part of the mix. I think like they were saying, it's nice to have that mix for managing the grid. It's, it's really nice to have yet another resource here that we didn't have 10 years ago. And, and I think that's partially a the customer's resistance to embracing those real-time pricing products because they are out there, I think is because of the low prices we have. I mean, I think low prices are great, but I think as long as customers can, can pay their bills, um, you know, 
fit it into their budget, they're less inclined to go out looking for ways to save money. So if you, if you um, and it, it fits um, in the same way with demand response. Demand response really, 70% of our peak demand, if you look at our demand on peak last summer was around 68,000. And if you look at the spring and the fall, it's around 30,000. So, uh, and if you look during the peak of the day, it's a very big increase. So we have an opportunity to shave some of that peak off with demand response products. But what we've seen is that customers really haven't seemed to be all that inclined to embrace those, even though we have had smart meters rolled out. So I think it's, I think it's something that will happen over time with solar. Um, but I think a lot of the things that are driving the pricing um, have an impact on, on things like real-time products and solar and other technologies that benefit from that peak price that customers really don't see. I wrote an article in 2010 in Solar Today where I boldly proclaimed that within a decade, Texas would lead the national market in solar. So we've got eight years left to see if I'm an idiot or not. And uh, at the time, I, well, maybe we already know the answer. But, the, uh, <laughs> but I won't know the answer for eight years. So the, uh, at the time, if you listed the top 10 states for installed solar power in America, Texas wasn't even in the top 10. It was California number one and New Jersey number two. And that was actually the motivation. It was like, New Jersey is a small, cloudy state. And they've got a lot more solar than Texas, where we're a big, sunny state. And so I, I started looking into it. I thought, OK, actually, I think we're going to do for solar what we did for wind. Like you said, the same exponential growth, although not to the 10 gigawatts in a decade, maybe a gigawatt or something. But I think we'll see exponential growth. And the reason why I think solar will do so well in Texas is because we've got a lot of photons. And you tend to build solar plants where there's solar, except New Jersey is the one exception. In <laughs> Germany. Germany is the other exception. <laughs> but Germany pays so much for power. They, they have other motivations, I guess. But anyway, so you tend to build solar plants where the photons are. We've got a lot of cheap flat land, which is a better place to build solar than, say, in California, where it's mountainous and expensive. We have the transmission line capacity, or we will have it soon. And that transmission line capacity is good for wind at night. could be shared by solar during the day, perhaps. We have natural gas on the grid that could serve as firming power when the solar is not there. And a lot of states, like Illinois or Indiana, if they want to build solar or wind, have to build the natural gas, too. We already have that built out. So, and then we have this growing demand overall, like you mentioned before, and we have growing peak demand. So we have very good market fundamentals for solar here compared to a lot of other states, which is why I think it will take off. And uh, so I think that's, uh, I think it's starting to happen with these big PPAs and other market arrangements. I think the competitive market in Texas actually works well for solar and wind in that it's a marginal pricing market where the market is based on the marginal cost of the next kilowatt hour or megawatt hour, what the price of that next one is. The bid isn't really the all-in cost for the power plant all the time. And so solar, which has a marginal cost of zero, competes well in that kind of market if you can afford to build it in the first place. So solar is kind of like new nuclear. It's very expensive to build, but then really cheap to operate once you have it. Um, now, nuclear and solar both get offended when I say that, by the way. So the nuclear guys hate being compared to solar and vice versa. But I, I think our competitive markets and those other fundamentals look pretty good for solar. So I think it'll take off here compared to a lot of other states. It's going to be hard for it to reach the levels of wind or the other fuels in the market. But I, I think we'll see some penetration. Mm -hmm. David, I'd be curious as to your thoughts on some of these um, sort of newer, so to speak, technologies, you know, solar and also uh, uh, demand response, you know, from where you, you sit at, at Luminant, you know, what kind of a role do you think they could play? Well, I think it's been a great discussion on solar. The reason why New Jersey has such a high level is that they have a very big state subsidy. So right now, if you map where solar installations are in the U.S., they map with photons, so where they're, but also they really map with where state subsidies are. 
and typically they're also in states that have much higher average rates for retail electricity. So New Jersey is, I think, close to double. They, now, their average usage is lower. They don't have the same air conditioning load that we all have at our homes, but they have a much higher rate. So they've made those choices in those states. Right now, as, as I think Pat mentioned, solar is still relatively expensive, um, so it's hard to compete, but it's hard for all new generation, as we've been discussing. I do think over time, you've seen the cost of solar dropping. You'll see more solar come in, um, but it will take some time. And our, the Texas power market is just so big. It's, the Texas power market, if we were a country, would be the 11th biggest. We're between South Korea and, and the UK. <laughs> I won't comment on the politics of whether we are. I'll leave that to <laughs> Chairman Nelson. But we're bigger than UK or Italy. And so we have one of the big installations, that solar installation for, for, near, for San Antonio. It'll be a couple hundred megawatts. It'll be a very small percent of our grid just because we're so large. So it's going to take some time. Um, and I think with, with where prices are, just like every other source of new generation, uh, it's, the economics are still a little challenged. But I do think that you'll see that kind of development happen, happen over time. Wind has done very well in Texas because its, it's economics are a little better. Uh, and we have such a great wind profile in West Texas. We invested in the infrastructure uh, for the transmission, which is a real constraint in other parts of the country. If you, you know, the saying goes, if you, if you want to have wind generation, you have to love transmission because you need the transmission. Because typically you're not going to put the big wind farm right in the middle of the city. And that's not where the wind blows. So we've invested in that. As you see recovery in power prices, I do think that wind you, you'll see continue to expand in Texas. Mm -hmm. So we've got a good profile in terms of photons and wind for Texas that'll be part of the mix for us. Okay. Well, and I, and I think we need to be really careful with incentives. I mean, you talked about incentives in New Jersey and they exist in California. And incentives distort competitive markets. And, um, and a really good example of that is I was in Portland in June and they have solar compacting garbage cans. And um, first of all, there's, the sun doesn't shine very much in Portland at all. It's a year, it's a year, year. <laughs> and they were located in the ones I saw in the downtown area and every single one that I saw was in the shade because of the buildings around them. So we need to be careful that people are making decisions based on economics that can be sustained over the long term and not short-term subsidies that distort the market, keep other forms of generation from entering the market, and then have us end up in a situation where we don't have the, uh, the amount of electricity we need to keep Texans moving. Michael, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, the extent to which sort of these incentives distort, distort the Yeah, market. I mean, the incentives are by intent and design a distortion. So the, um, and I think, I'd rather not have any of them, in all honesty, and have no incentive subsidies for any fuel choice or technology. But in my mind, free pollution is a, an incentive or subsidy, too. So if we're going to let someone pollute for free, then we either put a price on that to equilibrate the market or we incentivize something else. So the incentives are kind of an argument, well, um, they get to pollute for free, so we'll give them an incentive. I'd actually rather remove both and not pollute for free and not have the incentive. And I think the markets will settle it for us very well. And so the economists talk about the that in terms of the market externalities, the, the things that are external to the market that aren't priced into the market, which is like emissions, or in some cases land disturbance or ecosystem impacts, that kind of thing. And, uh, and by the way, the renewables have those too. Land and solar have a lot of, uh, the land impacts from solar and wind are very large. So if you price the ecosystem impacts on all of them according to the amount by which they impact, I don't think you need any incentives. I think it will settle out. And I think you'll settle out to a, a diverse portfolio. I don't think there'll be one answer. And that portfolio will be different in different parts of the state, uh, depending on what the resources are. And I think it would tend to be cleaner 
and I think we'd get there. So I actually would rather not have the subsidies or the tax credits. I think they are market distorting. I think they're subject to political whim, which means I might be there one year and not the next, which makes it very hard for a generator making a 70-year capital asset decision to have the politics change every year. So I'd rather not have any of that, but then price in those externalities. And the externalities in Texas we tend to think of are really environmental, but they're also like national security externalities in the liquid fuels markets. Um, so I've, I've been hearing a lot about, you know, sort of when we talked about solar, um, you know, it's still uh, difficult for it or, or other technologies, even coal, to compete sort of year-round with, with natural gas. I mean, so that raises the, the question, uh, Pat, of how long natural gas is going to be cheap. I'm going to take notes on this one. <laughs> yeah, go make money off of my next comments, folks, and you'll be, uh, you'll be uh, living in a truck. Um, the, uh, what if, and there's nothing wrong, not that there's anything wrong with trailers. I just want one of those food trucks from out yeah. here to come home with me to Houston. Um, I, the shale gas issue, and, and, and let's, let's think about subsidies, because I, I worked at the Railroad Commission as a staffer before I got on the PUC, and one of our jobs was to certify under a then-expiring federal tax credit program under Section 29 of the Income Tax Code the uh, the capability of formations in Texas to qualify as either tight sands or shale gas formations. So that was in 92. So it was a program that I think started in 82, ran for 10 years. Then if you got qualified as a reservoir that met these kind of geotechnical criteria, which the Railroad Commission had certainly expertise to determine, um, then those went forward and you got a 10-year tax credit going forward. So really from 82 to 2002, you had a lot of nice subsidies. It was about 54 cents an MCF, which at the time gas was about a buck. So that was a, about a one-third, half extra um, money in the bank. And that, that did a nice job. And so I tell people that want to shoot at the tax credits that were given to wind, because they're the same section of the code, that that kind of infant industry subsidy that we gave to wind, and I guess the argument would be, okay, they're an infant, they're a toddler, okay, they're in preschool, they're probably in junior high by now, when's the time to turn it down? That debate can happen at the federal level and probably will. Nonetheless, we did that for natural gas, and that resulting investment of the, of the taxpayers' dollars into, and this state benefited that, really got the fracking issues done, a lot of the, the horizontal drilling, those two are the kind of the key technologies that, yes, were driven by things other than that tax credit, but that tax credit certainly gave producers in a really low-cost era, when you weren't getting much for gas at all, a nice incentive to do some of the new technology that we are reaping this generation later, a lot of benefit from. And so that benefit, back to your question, Kate, is probably going to persist for a while. I, I, from everything I do in my day job for on the gas side, I, there's a lot. There's a lot of production going on there. It's not two dollar gas though. It's three, four, five dollar gas. That's the economic kind of crossover point. So that's above where we are today. And I think when when the markets kind of equilibrate there, we'll probably be in a lot healthier shape where you're getting the right price signal being sent for gas. But much like we did with the exuberance. There's a lot of exuberance in the shale gas. And as a second and final thought, a lot of people are drilling for oil in this state. And you hear Barry um, Smitherman talking a lot about this in his new <laughs> job. There's a lot of oil production here that we didn't have two years ago. Yeah. Well, oil doesn't just come out as oil. It comes out with a lot of gas around it. So you're pulling up oil to get that $90 you know, pop in your wallet. There's a lot of gas there that's probably not 
you know, worth anything to you because you're already getting your 90 bucks for that. So you kind of throw the gas into the network here. That suppresses the price of kind of regular natural gas as well. So you've got, and I was told that that's about a 25% of the gas flowing in the intrastate grid. I don't know about the national grid is associated gas. It's gas that's produced when you produce oil. And in other words, no one's really getting economic price signal for all that gas. That's flooding the system. As long as oil and gas are kind of at this different level, I do think we're going to have a lot of gas flowing in the system that isn't kind of driven by a price signal. So it's not a subsidy, but yet it's that same distorting thing that Donna rightfully is concerned about, that the signals aren't really true economics. It's not government intervening, it's nature, but nonetheless it's a, it's a challenge for us to look forward on gas and see when is the price going to hit kind of a, a, a natural level where the marginal price of production equals the clearing price of the resource. I hope it'll be soon. I mean, I, I, as a consumer I want it low, but as a kind of energy person I want it to be at the healthy, correct level, and so that level is higher than where we are today. But I do see, Kate, I, I don't see from the production level data, the reservoir data, all the stuff that I see, both public and, and proprietary, that that's going to be abating any time between now and the end of the decade. So cheap gas is here. Cheaper, not probably cheaper than today. I think it will kind of level on up. But this is where you can live in the trailer or the mansion. I don't know if that's $4 <laughs> next year or three fifty or 5 but you know, pick your number. It's not going to have a two in front of it anymore, though. I think, yeah, so I would say that it's going to go up to around $4 or who knows, somewhere in there. That's almost a doubling. So I would say that that will feel to us today, who've already forgotten 2008, <laughs> that'll feel expensive, the doubling, built. but it's still cheap compared to the $14 gas back in 2007, 2008. There are a couple of reasons why the prices should go up in the next one or two years. First of all, if you talk to the natural gas operators, they say nothing cures low gas prices like low gas prices that low gas prices make us lose our shirt, so we're going to shut in production and produce less. And that will tighten supply. Also, low gas prices inspire people to use more gas, so we're going to build gas generators that burn gas. We're going to have people trying to switch from oil to gas and coal to gas or whatever. That will drive up demand. And at the same time, we have a recoupling that will happen in the next few years to the international markets for gas. Right now, we're so well supplied in the United States, we have a domestic price for gas, and then there's a global price for gas. Our price for gas is $3. The global price is 10 to $12. And as a consequence, we're going to try to find ways to export our gas from here to those other markets to make more money, and that will couple us to some degree and put upward price pressure on. So there are a couple of reasons why there'll be upward price pressure. And then the one main reason for the downward price pressure is we're getting all this gas for free from the oil guys. So how those play out will be tricky to see, but I suspect it goes up a couple dollars in the next few years. I've seen fertilizer plants come, the demand side's a big mm -hmm. one. I, I do, John, back. I'm going to quote you, John Fainter's old friend, and he mentioned you know, when Austin converts from coal to gas, then gas prices will go up. It's just a truism that, you know, what happens here at the local utility kind of drives stuff. Demand is going to, people are going to hop to gas. There's a nice gas-fired um, motorcycle, motorcycle yeah. that, that uh, we get Campbell and I have yeah. a little eye on as we walk out of here. But if it disappears, you know where to look, either Dallas or Houston. But there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of new uses for natural gas that I think are exciting. I mean, they were what we were talking about when I was a staffer at the Railroad Commission and T. Boone was pushing natural gas fleets across the state. You know, finally, we're lit. that was back when it was a dollar. And I always worry, well, if it wasn't, didn't work when it was a dollar, an MCF, why is it going to work now when it's three or four? But it's because, you know, the competing price for oil is more than 4X as well. So maybe, maybe we'll, but I think the demand pull is going to definitely be up. You see that on every trend is demand for natural gas, not just from the power gen sector, 
which is a big one, but from the other uses of natural gas across the economy. Fertilizers are coming back from Malaysia and uh, Gabon. Or they're moving back here to the United States because of the access to cheap natural gas. That's great. That's great for jobs. It's a great story. But it also kind of helps the slow price issue, which is nice too. Well, great. This has been a great discussion, and now we've got uh, uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes for questions. Um, um, and there's some folks with uh, mics around. Yes, here they come. Um, so. Oh, let them shout it down. That's the whole yeah, We can always repeat the question. If we, I will repeat the question. Okay. Um, well, first, thank you. This has been very interesting podcast. Um, and Kate, I enjoyed reading your stuff in the Tribune as well. Um, one of the things that is, to me, somewhat of the untold story that the uh, can hear perfect. 2011 taught a lot of people was the interconnection between energy and water, that you honestly can't get one without the other. And fracking is a wonderful way to show that. Um, on the other side of where electricity generation depends on water, that there, ERCOT talked about, maybe there are some constraints that are possible there. Um, looking into the future, and as you do, where do you see that interplay on water usage in the production of energy? And if 2011 was not an aberration, um, but is a year that may repeat itself in the future, what happens to electricity supplies at that point? Maybe we could start with you, Donna. Well, what I would say is um, the beauty of our competitive market, and I think Pat did a really good job of explaining you know, the transition from the regulated market to the competitive market. The beauty of the competitive market is those generators have incentives to stay online. And so what we saw last summer was that those generators, you know, move their intake valves or whatever they had to do to um, keep the air con to keep their units running, so we could our air conditioners could keep running. So they bake those things into the investment decisions they make. Um, we do have technologies out there, obviously, like solar and wind that don't use water. Um, they have other factors that. Um, make them difficult at times like wind is the time, you know, timing of when the wind blows. So I think those factors will be considered when, when companies like Luminant decide whether to invest. Um, you know, I, I can give you a statistic. I think on average um, generators use about 4% of the water used in the United States. So it's mm. lower, than most, lower than most people think it is, the net use. So. So that would be. Michael, did you want to add anything? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. I think this is a, a very relevant topic. I think we use a lot of energy for water and a lot of water for energy. And the, the good news is if you have abundant energy, you have abundant water. And if you have abundant water, you therefore have abundant energy. So that's the good news part of it. The bad news is if you have a shortage of one, you can have a shortage of the other. So you get cross-sectoral vulnerabilities or constraints. And we certainly see it with powers out in the city. They don't have water for a couple of days or weeks unless they have a backup power system available. So the water system's is well known. Is well, known well known. What's less well known is the energy sector's vulnerability to water. And in, if we talk about liquid fuels production, there's a lot of water injection used for oil and gas. The, the fracking guys know this. It's a, an expense for them to, to write a check to get the water in some way. It's a politically sensitive point in whatever area they're working in. 
you know, I'd say that the, it looks like the trends are right and that the amount of water used per hydraulic fracturing well is decreasing. And that's because the technology is getting better. They're more attuned to it. They're going to some waterless techniques in some places where they use like a propane gel instead of water. They inject the propane that does a fracking, then the propane evaporates and comes back up. They capture it, use it again. They could use treated wastewater, brackish water. So there are other options there for the liquid fuels production that might work. We use a lot of water for biofuels production. This is an ugly side of the story from the biofuels mandates. A lot of people don't realize is that the biofuels mandates federally were basically a water mandate. And the amount of water we're using for those biofuels growth eclipse the amount of water we use for oil and gas. So that's a, a, a tough story, especially if we're growing it with, for corn. If we go to some other advanced crops that are uh, less water intensive, some cellulosics or something that might work better, or growing crops of sugar cream that can use brackish, that's another issue. Then if we look at the power sector, this is a big one. The power sector needs a lot of water for cooling, and so if the water's not there, it's a, it's a risk to the power plant. They might need to throttle back or turn off completely, and also the water temperature is an issue. So if you have a heat wave and the water's too hot, you can't get the cooling out of it you need, that affects your plant performance. And if the water's not there in the first place, that affects plant performance, or you can have a combined effect. And I guess the big fear a lot of us have is that 2011 was the new normal, not the aberration. We got the state climatologist here, so maybe we'll get the hint later. But the, we uh, try to figure out, uh, the trends look bad from a, a weather perspective. And there's already nuclear power plants in other parts of the nation turning off or dialing back, so that's something we have to think about. I think what it comes down to for the power sector is that new build, new power plants will take water in mind. And water lean will become important along with clean from an emissions perspective. And that means power plant operators will perhaps choose fuels technologies that don't need water, or they'll choose cooling technologies that don't need as much, like dry cooling. The problem with that, going to dry cooling, where you don't use water for the cooling at all, is it's very expensive to build, it takes more area, you have more land impact, and then you have a performance hit. You get less performance out of your power plant. So you actually increase your other emissions. So you get this tension between what's good for the atmosphere versus what's good for the water versus what's good for the land. And that's gonna be tough to resolve, but I think it's gonna show up in the decisions for what the new power plants will be. And where, and where they will be. I mean, yeah. one of the nice things, and, and Donna and, and her colleagues and predecessors did a lot to kind of push this competitive renewable energy zone construction of transmission out toward West Texas, whereas we've got a lot more access, and we'll have by the end of next year, a lot more access to the grid. It was built with wind in mind, but I think a lot of what you could imagine going out there is as people respond to what Michael just talked about and, and do this more dry cooling technology, for example, for natural gas, with the emissions constraints, they're not going to build those in Dallas or Houston or, in the, or, in, or even in Central Texas now with the air issues. They will build them in West Texas because they don't have to be on a, a stream bed anymore. Um, they'll be using air as a dry coolant and, and the increased emissions that may come out of that result um, would be in an area that can handle that. And so the, having a robust grid statewide is a nice benefit to really a different agenda, but is one that I think could allow for a more diverse siting of uh, power generation plants. I want to get to the next question, but David, um, how did you see 2011 from a power generator perspective and the water issue? Well, I think it's, um, as described, it was a record demand year for electricity and a near record drought, so we tested the system. Um, and we really didn't have any meaningful curtailments due to lack of water. Now, we and I'm sure other generators invested pretty significantly in, in downside scenarios if the drought had continued. So we had done things at our plants both to manage water use and to manage how we access water so we'd be more resilient. So I think we have a little bit of backup in the system because of those investments. But if 
2011 is the norm rather than the exception, then it does say that it's something we're going to have to be mindful of. And as, as, as Panda Michael described, it, it takes some time to drive change. I do think new generation resources are going to take it into account. And if we're in a gas-centered environment, new natural gas CCGTs tend to need less dedicated water. Um, but it takes time to change out the grid. So it it's just has to be part of the plan. I know we're evaluating water. This has to be part of the plan. Mm -hmm. Is there another question? Yeah. Um, I, w I hope the next generation thinks about energy independence not as a national goal, but as an individual goal, a homeowner goal, where homes and offices are efficient and they can generate power by going to Home Depot and buying solar panels that they could plug in. So. Do you guys see that as a reality? Do you guys see it as augmenting the grid or a threat to the grid uh, when homeowners start thinking about power generation as primarily something they get off their roof and secondarily from a grid? So the, the, the question is about uh, homes being self-sufficient and uh, how that affects, affects the grid. Who wants Pat? I mean, zero emission homes is our local uh, utility here in, in Austin. That's a, that's an espoused goal for new construction going forward here. And it's, you know, people, when I first got on the commission, kind of laughed at that. They aren't laughing at that anymore. I mean, the residential efficiencies, even with houses double the square foot that we had when I was a kid, you have a lot less draw because you've got more efficient appliances already. So there is some net consumption there. Throwing, throwing solar panels on the roof, I've, I've done that. I designed it actually so I, we don't have net metering here in Texas, so I, which is I, as it should be, I think. Um, but I, I designed my system so that it kind of hit my daily minimum. So I've got, um, I could do a lot more probably if, if the grid were able to import and export and all the smart stuff they're doing at Pecan Street would probably make that work better for me. But, you know, I think it's possible. It's probably available only to folks who've got a check to write as far as broadly distributable uh, across the, the, the full spectrum of the population, I think it's going to be slower. But the early adopters, you know, whoever's early today is mainstream tomorrow. I think that stuff going on, and a lot of it's been led here in Austin, I think that's a very achievable goal. I don't think it's one we'd achieve in 2020, but when my kids are, you know, daddies and granddaddies, sure. I think there'll be a lot of that because you'll have some push from the government, but some draw from the customer to uh, move toward a lot less reliance. Not for any other reason than that, this, that they want it. Again, as, as Donna points out beautifully, the economics of what we have here make energy consumption actually not something people are trying like every 10 minutes to try to reduce because it's relatively cheap. But um, the, the need for it driven by building codes and by personal preferences and certainly by kind of the culture like you would have here in Austin, I think is gonna be very, very dominant in this generation that's coming up. And, and I don't think it's bad for the grid. I mean, to get to your question, I think it's good for the grid. I think you'll continue to see, you know, a combination of distributed generation and, and you know, transmission distribution generation, you know, power plants, solar. And the thing about Texas is we've set up the infrastructure. Um, we're favorable to every technology, you know, as long as customers want to make it work. So. And, and, and that, you should underscore that, Donna, because other states are not near, and I, I, that's what my era, this was y'all, really trying to drop the barriers to entry for interconnection at every voltage. That's a real achievement that Texas is kind of a, a bellwether for the world. And so that's where regulators can make a lot of difference, not telling people what to do, but saying we're going to get all the barriers to entry, whether they're 
uh, engineering related or kind of financially related and other type operational. Get those out of the way so that people can do what they want to do. That's the whole point of choice is to allow people to decide how they want to live their life. So if the, if the grid can be enabled for that, and there's not a better grid, certainly with the smart metering we've got now. Again, I think the Pecan Street example probably is, I'd love to hear you talk more about it, but I think that's a neat one that can probably be a harbinger of things to come, not only here, but elsewhere. So I think, so me, um, maybe I'll mention Pecan Street a little bit more than I, I think that the idea of getting homes off the grid uh, has a variety of motivations. There's some environmental motivations. There's some people who just like gadgets and like the fun of the, the technology. <laughs> there's uh, people with a self-reliance ethic who just want to be independent and off the grid. And there's some people who just really want their air conditioner to run in the summer, no matter what kind of blackouts happening to the rest of the state. <laughs> and, and sometimes you might be all four of those wrapped up in one. So there's a lot of reasons why off the grid mentality makes sense. But even when they're off the grid and self-reliant, the challenge is they're actually still hooked up to the grid. The grid's available as backup. And we need to figure out the economics so that as we make these homes more efficient and self-operable, but still hooked up to the backup grid, that we don't bankrupt all the guys running the grid who no longer are selling power to those homes because they're independent but need the generators and transmission lines to be there. So we have to figure out the economics of how that will work. How do we pay for the wires and poles and the generators on backup if we're not using them, but we need them there just in case? And that's something that the country is sort of revealing. We're seeing all these time of day use mm -hmm. profiles of when people use their energy, how much they use it, uh, when is the solar on. The solar is not on a peak. It's on a couple hours before peak. Uh, if you have west-facing solar, it's closer to peak, but still not quite on peak. So you can do south solar versus west solar. And south-facing solar, your solar panels, your roof that face to the south, generate more um, energy throughout the day for you. But the west-facing solar is more aligned with peak. So one's more valuable to the utility or the grid, and the other's more valuable to the homeowner, depending whether you have real-time pricing. So those are some of the things we're learning from Pecan Street. And we're also learning that if the incentives are right, people want to do it. If, in, if the prices are right, people want solar panels and electric cars and all sorts of things. And the other thing I think that's a challenge for all of these off-the-grid issues with homes is that a lot of these technologies are cheap to operate but expensive to buy. They're very expensive to buy up front. And so it's probably easier to get it up front wrapped into your home loan when you can spread the cost out over 30 years rather than paying for the cost over one month and then reaping the benefit for 30 years. That's, that's a constant struggle with a lot of these mm -hmm. technologies. And there are builders who are putting those panels on, like Lennar has, I think, mm -hmm. a project in Cedar Park where they're putting solar panels on the house. They're not in the competitive market. Um, so what, they're, what they do is they, they pay for it, and the homeowner can pay for it if they want, but they pay for it. And then for the life of the home, they buy power back from the owner at night at 90% of what they would otherwise pay. So they save 10%, so. Um, well, unfortunately, I'm being told we are out of time. Um, I know there are many more questions, but thank you very much to uh, the panelists. This was a great discussion. And, uh, <laughs>